pray. There have been an awful lot of hallelujahs this morning, Lord, and you deserve 10,000 more. And we are unworthy of this great story because it's true, every word and every promise that comes out of it, out of your resurrection, out of the tomb, out of the very heart of Christ. All of our hope hangs on that. And so we will sing hallelujah. For eternity we will sing hallelujah. And we will sing it with the angels. We will sing it with our brothers and sisters in Christ. We will sing it with the elders around the throne. Because you are worthy. Fill us, Father, with a sense of the glory and majesty of being forgiven because of the great cost that it cost you and the great reward that is ours. Lord, we praise you and we give you thanks for this day, this resurrection day. And we praise you for it in the name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Christ is risen. This Resurrection Sunday morning, I stand in this pulpit to proclaim to you a message. This Jesus, who was crucified, is alive. Shall I say it again? <laughs> this Jesus, who was crucified, is alive. Beloved, this is what everything hangs on. The cross and the empty tomb. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is that central moment in human history that proclaims and proves that Jesus is Christ the Lord. In terms of importance, I mean, the resurrection stands side by side with other doctrines like the deity of Christ, the virgin birth, justification by faith alone, and all the other cardinal doctrines of the Bible. Apart from the resurrection, Christianity is just another lifeless, hopeless religion, no better than any other man-made effort to define and reach God. And by the way, there are a number of denominations who call themselves Christian who fit this description perfectly. Here's what the Apostle Paul said. If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain. Your faith is also vain, and we are found to be false witnesses of God. But with the bodily resurrection, Jesus, Jesus at the epicenter of the whole thing, biblical Christianity breaks free from the thick milieu of false religion and and offers to all people the only trustworthy assurance of eternal life. The resurrection proves that. That's what the resurrection is for. It's not the only thing it's for, but for our sakes, that's what it's for. In our study in Romans chapter 1, we've been devouring like starving beggars the rich, the rich theological food that Paul has been serving up week after week. Paul loves the doctrines of the Bible. 
But aside from the atonement that took place on the cross of Christ, Paul may have loved the doctrine of resurrection above everything else. He would probably frown on me for saying that. How could one inspired truth be greater than another? And yet, what do we do with the resurrection if not exalt Christ in it above all? In his New Testament letters, I've counted nearly 55 times when Paul points to the necessity and benefits of the resurrection. In fact, you may remember in Romans 1, right? We've been studying Romans 1 for a little while. In verse 14, Paul described Jesus as descendant of David according to the flesh, who was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. By his resurrection from the dead. So here's the question that he's answering. How can we know for certain that Jesus is the Son of God? Paul says we know it because he is risen from the dead. On this resurrection Sunday morning, however, I want us to step aside from Paul's teaching in Romans for the most part and just take a few minutes to delight and relish the gospel resurrection narrative. Specifically, I want us to focus on the gospel of Matthew. We looked at John's gospel already this morning. Matthew's account of the resurrection is much shorter. And so turn with me to Matthew chapter 28. Because in the first 10 verses of this chapter, I see four narratives, four narrative scenes that comprise Matthew's testimony of Jesus' resurrection. But before we examine them, let's do what Paul told us to do, namely to give attention to the public reading of the Scripture. So stand with me, please, and turn to Matthew 28, and beginning with verse 1. Here is what we read. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became as dead men. But the angel said to the woman, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who is crucified. He is not here, for he is risen just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay, and then go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell the disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. And then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. 
May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. Well, the first movement in this narrative of resurrection is what we might call a scene of unrelenting affection. A scene of unrelenting affection. It was Sunday morning, the first day of the week. And as John tells us, it was still dark when the women came to the tomb. They'd come not merely as broken-hearted mourners, but rather as devoted lovers of Jesus. They loved Jesus. They adored Jesus. Their whole lives hung on Jesus. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary, how would you like to be called that, ladies? This is Mary, the other Mary. These two women had been faithful. Mary and the other Mary, uh, she is the mother of James and Joseph. They, they had been faithful followers of Jesus from the beginning, or close to the beginning, all the way to the end at the cross. They had served Jesus in Galilee. They had stood by his side when he was being crucified, and now they were coming to perform a special act of service for the one that they love. Even though it was the third day since his death, so he's been in the grave, count back three, and now they're coming to see him? This, beloved, is nothing less than a display of unrelenting affection. Even after his death, these women could not pry themselves away. Only the law of God concerning the Sabbath could keep them from the grave. Mark tells us that they came to the tomb bearing spices, which they hoped to anoint Jesus' body. These were the same kind of spices that Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus would have applied between the linen wrappings. It was kind of an embalming preparation or embalming uh, ministry of Jesus. And they did it at night, almost night. They did it late afternoon. You might remember that Joseph and Nicodemus were in a bit of a hurry when they went through this process with Jesus' body. They wanted to take care of him. They wanted to honor him. This was actually an act of worship of him. He had been crucified on preparation day, we're told in 27 verse 62. Preparation Day was the official Jewish designation for Friday because it was the day before the Sabbath. And on the Sabbath, no work was allowed to be done. So if you were going to have any kind of preparations, any food, any fire, anything that you were going to need on the Sabbath, it all had to be prepared the day before, hence Preparation Day, Friday. And so Joseph and Nicodemus had to get Jesus embalmed before the beginning of Shabbat, which is what the Jews called the Sabbath. And that was going to be a, a difficult task because they probably received Jesus' body from Pilate in late afternoon on Friday, and they had to be done their work by sundown because of the law. And so their time was extremely limited. Not only that, but the sheer volume of spices and perfumes they brought to the tomb was enormous. In those days, not everyone who died was wrapped and buried and packed in strips of linen. 
If you were a poor man and you died, uh, people would generally build a, dig a shallow grave and, and put rocks around you and, and pour dirt over you, and, and that would be it. If you were kind of in the middle class, so to speak, you might be put on a slab inside a tomb where the person's body would eventually decay and his bones would be gathered up and put into an ossuary in order to make room for someone else. An ossuary is, is a container. It's like a big jar that they would put bones in so that someone else could use that particular gravesite, that tomb. If a man was fairly wealthy or had wealthy friends, he would be wrapped in linen cloths like Lazarus was. And those strips would be packed with various spices that would, that would act as a very poignant perfume to kind of mask the smell, the odor of the decomposition process. In fact, it wasn't uncommon for a rich man's body to be wrapped with 50 pounds of this expensive perfume. It was a sign of honor. It was a sign of dignity. It was a sign of status in the eyes of those who were making the sacrifice. The more spices were added in the embalming process, the greater the honor of the deceased. When Jesus died, however, he was not buried on the surface of the ground or laid uncovered on a slab to eventually decay and have his bones put in a jar. No, he was given a rich man's burial. He was given the burial of a king. In fact, Nicodemus and Joseph prepared for his body as they prepared for it. They, they didn't use 50 pounds of spices. We read in John 19, 39, that it was nearly 100 pounds of spices and nard and perfume. It was a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 100 pounds, John says. And then John tells us that this was, a, this was to fulfill prophecy. What was happening to him after his death was actually prophesied beforehand. When Isaiah said that the Messiah's grave would be assigned with wicked men, and yet he would be with a rich man in his death. In fact, there were two rich men in his death. Well, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary knew how much perfume had been wrapped around Jesus' clothes, in these cloths already. According to chapter 27, verse 61, they had been sitting there watching late afternoon on Friday when Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea was doing their work, embalming Jesus. But to them... A hundred pounds of perfume wasn't enough to give appropriate honor to the one that they had come to love. And so they came back just as soon as they could. They came back even before the sun rose two days later. They came right after the Sabbath, even before sunrise, to declare by the addition of their spices that Jesus is more worthy of sacrificial honor even than the greatest of kings. I can't help but make the simple observation here that, that these women would never have discovered the risen Christ if they have not decided to honor him early that morning, believing 
rightly that nobody would be there and the stone would have it sealed. The privilege of being the first to discover his miraculous resurrection was given to them simply because they were the ones who showed up. They came. None of the men came. None of the disciples, with all their bravado, none of them came. But the ones who loved him, at least two of them, two of his disciples, they just couldn't stay away. Beloved, the mark of a true child of God has never been religious activity or agreeing with a doctrinal statement. Rather, it has always been a heart that loves Christ. Those who have been forgiven much love much. And I know that there are some of you here this morning, either in this room or in the, in the congregation down the hall, I shouldn't say it like that. They get a little peculiar about that. I'm just kidding you guys. You know I love you. <laughs> the mark of a true child of God has never been ritual. It's never been agreeing to a doctrinal statement. It's about loving Christ. I know there are some of you here who think you're the most wretched sinner in this church. And I'm just telling you, if you think that way, you probably love Jesus more than you, who knows how much other people love Jesus. But here's what Jesus says, those who are forgiven much, love much. Let your past propel you into love of Christ. Remember what Jesus said to the Pharisees? when he was, They were fiercely arguing with him. And they claimed that God was their father, and Jesus said, if God were your father, you would what? You would love me. If God were your father, you would love me. But they didn't love him. They killed him. To those who love Jesus, God delights to give all the spiritual treasures that spring from the resurrection And such were the two Marys. They came to the tomb in broken-hearted affection, but left the grave in the ecstasy of resurrection joy. And so the first scene was a, a scene of unrelenting affection. Second, there's the scene of angelic visitation. Look at verses 2 through 6, kind of the biggest part of this Resurrection story. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothing as white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid. They had good reason to be afraid, right? They're at the tomb. And where are the guards? They're at the tomb. Except last time they saw him, they were standing guard. And now they look like they're dead. It's no wonder the angel had to say, don't be afraid, this is not going to happen to you. This is not going to happen to you. 
Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who is crucified. He is not here, for he is risen, as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. This is the second time in three days in Jerusalem there had been an earthquake. And both were directly related to God's enormous power directed toward earth because of Jesus. The first was when Jesus was on the cross just before just before he died, God caused the light of the sun to be blotted out, and then he sent a violent earthquake. A massive, it was a massive, unmistakable display of sovereign displeasure. God was angry. But here, in this text, you get the sense that God sent the second earthquake as kind of a rock-splitting display of sovereign joy. His son is risen, just as he said. The son of God had conquered death and sin, and the ramifications of which indeed are earth-shattering. Matthew tells us the earthquake was accompanied by a mighty angel of the Lord who, sent by God, came to Jesus' tomb and rolled the great stone away and sat down on the top of it to the, other, the utter horror of the soldiers guarding the tomb and to the sheer delight, at least eventually, of the women who came to see Jesus. It's no wonder the soldiers were afraid. The angel's appearance was like lightning. What does that mean? I don't know. They were really bright. It's like, you know, a, a, a thousand lumen flashlight being beamed into your eyes. His clothing was white as snow. Lightning, lightning white is not a typical description of fabric. The only, the only beings in the universe who shine with a lightning whiteness are those who have been, listen carefully, in the presence of God. On the Mount of Transfiguration, Jesus appeared and was changed so that he shined like lightning, except he wasn't reflecting God's lightning, lighting, light, his brightness. It was his glory that was exposed. And Moses, when he came down from the mountain and received the Ten Commandments, he had to wear a veil over his face so as not to scare the people because his face shined for having been in the very presence of God. Matthew tells us, verse 4, that the guards shook for fear and became like dead men. The Greek word here gives the impression that these men were so terrified of this heavenly being that they fell to the ground and shook until they passed out. And the women were afraid too. In fact, John tells us that Mary Magdalene didn't hang around to see the angel. As soon as she saw the empty tomb and the guards laying there as if dead, she took off running to tell Peter and the others that someone had taken Jesus' body. But the other Mary and a few other women who are not named here but are in another gospel, they stayed behind and and got to see the angel and to hear his message. 
Look at verses 5 and 6. The angel says, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who is crucified. He is not here, for he is risen just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. I want you to note here that the angel had nothing to say to the soldiers. As far as he was concerned, they could just lay on the ground and quiver. But to these precious women, whom God the Father loved, God the Son loved these women. In fact, I can't point to a scripture, but I bet it's true. When Jesus died, he went to the right hand of the Father. That part we know. And then on the third day, with angels standing by, early before the sun rose, Jesus said, go, take the message, tell them. And when they came, the earth shook. And so he says, don't be afraid. The angel knew why they were there. And God had sent the angel to deliver this message and what is the message? Well, here's the message. Jesus is no longer in the tomb, but no one has stolen his body. And Mark tells us that another angel also appeared and invited the women to come and look into the tomb for themselves. And there would have been no mistaking what they saw. With a hundred pounds of aloe and myrrh pressed between strips of cloth, it would have been, it would have been lying there like a stiff, hollow cocoon shaped like a man. And John even tells us that there was a face covering that apparently Jesus took off his own face and folded it up and laid it there. Probably so everyone could see that whoever had been there was no longer there. Intentionally. The angel then, knowing that seeing is not always believing, appeals to the very words of Jesus. He says in verse 6, He has risen. Now listen carefully to these simple words. He is risen just as he said. Beloved, let those words ring deep in your soul. Jesus had repeatedly told his disciples all about the divinely inspired mission that God the Father had put him on that would send him to his death. In, in Luke's gospel, the angel says this, Remember how he spoke to you while you were still in Galilee, saying that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise again. And the disciples said, I wonder what that means. Pass the matzah, please. Not a clue. This was not part of the narrative for them. It wasn't part of their paradigm. It, it didn't fit, so they ignored it. Again, Matthew 12, the Pharisees demanded a sign, and Jesus said this, Just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. 
And again, Matthew 16, 21, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. Luke explains that when the angel reminded the women of these things, quote, then they remembered Jesus' words. They remembered Jesus' words. Oh, that's what he meant. None of us knew it. Isn't this interesting? The first people to understand their Bibles relative to the Messiah were Mary, Magdalene, and the other Mary. They had to go tell the disciples. Five times in the inspired record, Jesus explicitly tells his disciples that I'm going to Jerusalem, we are going to Jerusalem, I will be killed, and I will be put into the ground, and it will all happen just as I say. You see, friends, Jesus didn't die merely because the religious authorities in Jerusalem hated him. They did. Jesus died on the cross to fulfill the Father's plan to bring salvation to all who would believe. In fact, at Pentecost, when Peter stood up to preach the first sermon, he explains this continuity, or confluence, we might call it. Who put Jesus on the cross? Was it the Jews, the Romans? Was it God? Here's how Peter described it in his first sermon. This man, speaking of Jesus, delivered over, listen carefully, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held by its power. Now, there's deep, rich theology there that we will get to in Romans 8 and 9 about 10 years from now. <laughs> what I want you to see is that every detail of Jesus' death and resurrection were so many elements of the saving mission, mission the Father had established for his Son before the world began. His sovereign hand orchestrated everything to the praise of his glory and to the salvation of all who would believe. And it all happened, you can say it with me now, just as he said. Friends, Jesus is not like you. He is not like me. He is God in flesh. He is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. He knows the end from the beginning because, not because he's, he's smart enough to figure it out, but because his invisible hand of providence orchestrates all things to accomplish God's holy will. And so we can trust this, that in one sense or another, everything, everything is just as he said. If there is one maverick molecule in the universe, 
God is not sovereign, but he is. And he holds the worlds together by his powerful word. So we've reviewed the scene of the unrelenting affection, the scene of angelic visitation. Thirdly, a scene of gospel proclamation. Verses 7 and 8, the angels are still speaking here to the women, and he says, then go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead, and behold, he is going before you to Galilee, and there you will see him. I have told you. And so they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. I mean, I tried this week to imagine what it must be like, must, must have been like for these women. I mean, the conflicting emotions that they were experiencing. Matthew mentions two of them, namely fear and joy, which typically don't happen in the same person at the same time. Fear and joy. Not doubt, fear and joy, because, because the death of Jesus had been the most devastating experience of their lives. Fear and joy because they just got to interact with an angel from heaven who didn't kill them. And joy also because, because the message that was delivered and, and fear also because it was too good to be true and they didn't want to be dis disappointed again. But they didn't have time to process any of that. They were told to go, so they took off running. The text says, they departed quickly. They were on a very real and important mission, and they wasted no time in fulfilling it. Before we finish up here, I, I, I want to make another observation. And I've made this before, but I just want you to hear it. I want you ladies to hear this, right? Everywhere Jesus and his gospel go, women are elevated. They're lifted up. They're not oppressed. When the church is acting like the church, when the gospel is having its due effect on the lives of men and women, women aren't oppressed. They're cared for. They're loved. Their opinions matter. Their labor is cherished. Did you notice that in these 10 verses, not a single man played an active role in the story? In Matthew's version of the gospel, inspired by the Holy Spirit, might I add? We just mentioned how God providentially governs over all and moves all to accomplish his holy will. That's his providence. We have to conclude that the only women... The only women who were at the tomb that Easter morning were there because it was the will of God that they be there. He wanted the two Marys and a few other women, not mentioned here, to be the first to know. And by the same token, in the mystery of his providence, he didn't want Peter to be first. That would have been a disaster. <laughs> For the rest of his life, he would have to say, I know, I know, Mary, Mary, Mary Magdalene was there first. Isn't this interesting? These subtle 
things in the Word of God to teach us how to live? Do we remember, just on the same theme, do you remember the first person that Jesus explicitly said, I am the Messiah? Do you know who that was? The woman at the well who'd had five husbands, and the one she had now was not her husband. It was to that woman in that conversation that Jesus said, you're speaking of the Messiah, I who speak to you am he. He didn't do that by accident. He had an appointment there with that woman. He was announcing that he was the Messiah to that woman. And then the first revival that broke out wasn't in Jerusalem. It was in Samaria, the outcasts, the half-Jews. Jesus loved the outcasts. The fact that there was a group of women who traveled with Jesus bears this out. And here, under the authority of the resurrected Christ, the two Marys were the first to see the empty tomb, and the first to see the angel, and the first to see the resurrected Christ. And and, and they were the only ones who were sent to go, like the shepherds in Bethlehem, to announce the good news. In fact, the news that they bore would prove to be greater than the disciples would even believe at first. And then Thomas wouldn't believe until more than a week later, well, exactly a week later. In a sense, these women were the first to proclaim the good news. They were the first to proclaim the good news. Now, I'm not saying, therefore, women should preach or hold an office of evangelist in the church or or anything contrary to the scriptures. I'm only saying that Jesus never treated women as if they were second-class Christians. And we rejoice in that, don't we, men? We rejoice. And much more could be said about that, but the story isn't quite over. We've reviewed the scene of unrelenting affection, the scene of angelic visitation, the scene of gospel proclamation, and finally, the scene of worshipful elation. Verses 9 and 10. We've already read it a couple of times here this morning, so let me just tell you, it, it, it must have been absolutely amazing to realize that you've just spoken to an angel. I mean, who's going to believe you? It must have been earth-shattering to them to hear that Jesus had risen from the dead. But nothing could prepare them for what was about to happen. Nothing could prepare them. There they are running down the path. They don't have to go very far. As they were running to find the disciples, Jesus suddenly steps out on the path and he says, hello. The translators make it more formal. Greetings. Nobody says greetings. Hello. He knew they were coming. He knew exactly when they were coming. They were coming just as he said. And right on time, and as soon as they see him, they collapse. They collapse at his feet. 
they spend not one millisecond on what they should say or how they should greet him. They simply fall at his feet and take hold of him. And I suspect they wept and cried with great wails of elation and joy. You must have had a thousand questions. How can it be that you are alive? Lord, we were at the cross. We saw you die. We saw you die. You've been in the grave for three days. What does it mean? How can this be? Where do we go from here? Well, there would be time for such questions. And you've got to know when Jesus entered the upper room that night. And before he did that, by the way, he met the two uh, disciples on the road to Emmaus. That's, that's an amazing story. But it's not here in Matthew, it's in Luke. So read it later. But you know, that night, that first night when he came, when the doors were locked and they were fearful, now they're targets of the Pharisees, the Sanhedrin. And they're hiding, and the door was no problem for Jesus. He just arrived. And you know what he said? Hello. <laughs> Greetings. And peace be to you, right? Peace. Like, don't, don't freak out that I'm here. You've got to know they asked a thousand questions. The following Sunday evening, they were in the same place doing the same thing. Thomas wasn't there the first time. We read about Thomas this morning, right? On the second Lord's Day, the second Sunday, that evening they were in the upper room, and Jesus appears, and Jesus says, Thomas, we need to talk. Come, put your fingers into my hands your hand into my side. Stop being faithless, but believing. And Thomas went from, unless I see it and touch it myself, I will never believe, to falling on his face like the women and saying, my Lord and my It's amazing. In my mind, I imagine the women kneeling with their faces in the grass and clinging to the resurrection Christ. And I can't help but see what Paul tells us will happen in the eschatological future when he tells us that one day every knee will bow. Every knee will bow. This is like a microscopic picture of what will one day be true. Every human, every man, every woman, every child, every angelic being, even undescribable creatures in heaven, they will all bow to him. Isn't this a wonderful gospel narrative of the resurrection? And beloved, I want you to hear this. This message is for you. It is for you. It is for you who 
are church-going people, and you love Jesus, this is for you. Of all people, you should delight in this. You should worship over this. You should, on the way home, be singing about it and praying about it and rejoicing in it. And for those of you who are like Thomas and they're somewhat agnostic about it, we're going to talk about this in Romans 1. You know that you believe there is a God. It is not possible for you to do otherwise. You may say you're an atheist. God doesn't believe in atheists. What he believes in is people who just don't want a relationship with God. And that's the most foolish thing in the world and the most dangerous. I plead with you. I plead with you. Let it be today. Stop suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. And believe. Fall before his feet as, as Thomas did and say, my Lord, my God, forgive me. And he will forgive. Can I end with just a few simple facts? I don't know why I'm asking. <clears throat> It won't take me the one minute that I have left. Are you ready for this? Buddha's tomb, occupied. Confucius's tomb, occupied. Muhammad's tomb, occupied. Jesus's tomb, empty. So friends, I stand in this pulpit this Resurrection Sunday to deliver the same message the women delivered to the disciples. This Jesus who was crucified is alive. He is risen. He is risen indeed. Let's pray. Lord, It's very rare that I use the word awesome, but this is awesome. We praise you for revealing it to us. We would not have known if you had not written it in a book. Bless your name, praise you. Help us to live in the good of it today. May your glory be manifest in our love for one another and to the love of people that we don't know. But may it not just be an outward love. May it also be a love that speaks this glorious truth, this glorious gospel truth, that the one who said he could grant eternal life did what no one could do. He conquered death and rose again. Lord, we believe. We believe. By your grace, we believe and we praise you in the name of our Savior Jesus.